right. And hello, everybody. Good day. Welcome back to another Merge Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story podcast stream. Um, I am excited to get to today's story. Got some uh, big stuff happening today. Hope that uh, you are interested in hearing a little bit of it. Um, uh, today we'll have a bunch of read heavy stuff again. I got to prep a lot of things for tonight's episode. We'll still be the revamping, explaining things, but there will be chunks that I'll be reading to you as well. Um, uh, today, uh, we're really only going to be focusing with one of the groups primarily. Working with Seraph's group. So, uh, we will not see any of Artis's group. Coming. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, today we'll be very serif based. Um, for, uh, I'm going to go ahead and start. Okay. <laughs> now, I'm going to say this. Um, when I start to get to the point that I'm entering into something big, you will know it very quickly. Um, if you have theories or strategies or you think you figured it out, it'd be awesome if you wouldn't mind holding that from posting in the chat until after it's done. So that way, if I've figured it out. People have not. They get to kind of see that. So uh, it would be good mind. I will probably remind of that a little bit later as well. Uh, just so that if this does work out to be, as I'm hoping it will, uh, people experience that. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of fun doing this. Um, now, as, as many of you know, I uh, have recently, in the past month or two, uh, started going back working full-time at my uh, call center job start working at the center once every two weeks Fridays while I dread it more than I can begin to describe the one positive of it is I won't be able to do much while I'm there other than my job and write so I will I will definitely have a lot of time every other Friday to get a lot of writing in I have anything else to do there I can't I am by the computer, all the stuff I normally would do, work on projects. Damn jobs. Okay, well, so we'll get into that. A brief recap of at least the uh, Seraph section. You'll remember Seraph and Deacon and Mugen had traveled to Sharptooth Harbor with Captain Endian, Pirate Lord, um, and through some adventures and information there, finally learned that uh, Nina was to leave there, go to a town, Pentacle Reef. Another man was to take her to a city way up in the north. From there, no one knew what the next link in the chain was. What they also learned is that at Tentacle Reef, very recently, a ship full of Ormanians had landed large group of them had gone off in the same direction, Ormon being the city of Dina's birth, the same people they're trying to hide her from. So Seraph and friends, uh, Captain Indian ship, rushed to the port as quickly as they could. The Ormanian ship had left. They had to split ways. Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen continued northeast, got some horses, and going after the Ormanians and Dina. 
Chris Captain Endian took the job to make sure that the Ormanian ship never got home, deliver a message that the Ormanians had at least somewhat found Dina, Bronner Trail. They also came to know that Lomar of the Nine was in fact still alive, could very well be one of the uh, main people behind the whole Dina being found and being chased thing. That is where we kind of left off with our three young men heroes uh, making a break as fast as they can northeast on the horses that they had just purchased. And that's where we're going to go. So, <laughs> no spoilers about it. No worries. Hopefully, it's entertaining as I'm hoping it is. Oh, but if you have a good time, it'd be awesome. You consider hitting the like button. Uh, if you're new here, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, don't mind taking a couple seconds to rate it, to give it the stars, the likes, the subscribe, whatever. <laughs> whatever it is on your podcast network of choice. I would. All right, so let's get into it. Everybody died! I'm just kidding. Um, my player characters, my players know that it's very common for me to start any D&D session, or what we like to call Doom, by me reminding everybody that I just killed everybody, even though I did. You sure I didn't kill everybody? I'm like, no! I'm like, kill most of everybody. Running gags. Let's begin. Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen had been riding hard for days. They pushed their horses as much as was safe, but they had reached a point that they had to let them rest. They'd made camp a short distance from the road in a small group of trees. Sitting around their small fire, they ate cold rations while discussing their next move. The road they traveled was well-made and well-kept, going all the way to the city of Medronol. They had passed through multiple villages where the people had been friendly but cautious. It was clear that Seraph and Mugen were viewed with suspicion, something they'd grown accustomed to in their time together. It was often Deacon's charisma that won over the people that they spoke to, that and a fat purse. From what they'd been told, the group of Ormanians were no more than two days ahead of them. They were also moving very quickly, rarely stopping. People they had met reported seeing the Ormanians, yet it seemed no one had ever spoken to them. They were avoiding stopping at any of the many villages that Seraph and Deacon were passing through. Other than that there were 20 to 25 of them, they were all male, was all that anyone knew or saw. Of the city of Medronol, they had learned the city was quite large, and from its description, may rival the city of Paxawal. The merge had brought the entire city through, though the lands surrounding it were from different worlds entirely. So we'll kind of touch on these couple of things. So there's a well-kept road, well-maintained, people traveling on it. They're going to have been on this road now for days trying to catch up to the Ormanians, stop them or find out what they know or find out if they've already got Dina. It could be any of those things. Well, trying to learn what they can about Medronol. All of the towns, they're like, oh yeah, we've seen the groups. They've passed through. They don't stop. They don't buy supplies. They don't talk to anybody really. Or they probably talked to one or two people or something, but nobody, they could be, oh yeah, I had a long conversation with the bartender or something. Never go in and in, they never spend the night. Um, so each time Sheriff and friends stop and ask for information, 
they are technically putting themselves a little bit further behind. Now, being three of them, they could probably make better time than also on horse. But it's still going to be a tight race. The city of Medjernal is big. It's Paxawal big. Paxawal is still, outside of the elven kingdom of Santrael, the biggest city southern kingdoms. Uh, the dwarves' city technically rivals, if not bigger, than both of them. But from a land distance, not as much. Because it's technically a level over a level over a level. So it's not as spread out as far as they are. But with it being multiple levels going deeper and deeper under Earth, it actually covers more land. Uh, doing some math and notations this week about the different kingdoms, I, I really got to sit down and look at that and realized, yeah, the Dwarven Kingdom's huge. <laughs> so, a little bigger than I may have ever implied. But Medrinol is a huge city. The entire city came through the merge. Completely. Um, but within a mile, or a couple of kilometers, if you from the city, everything around it was new. Uh, different countries, different lands from different worlds potched around it. So, um, not like it's like it landed in the middle of one world. No, multiple worlds built around it. Uh, but it is important that the entire city came through with up to about a mile radius around the city. So you can imagine a city like that. It's huge. It has supplies, it's food, it's lumber, it's whatever, metals. All of that would be more than probably a mile outside the city. A lot of it would be. So as you can understand, they would lose a lot of access to the things that they needed to stay alive and to keep going. We'll read on. The city was ruled by a family, but overseen by a group of senators. Soon after the merge, the city sent out delegates across the land, offering protection and trade to all the villages and farmsteads and such that were around. They required a very small tax in exchange, and with the uncertainty of the merge, most towns and villages accepted rather quickly. Um, the roads were well maintained and guarded, and the city stayed out of the village's politics, offering fair trade prices to all. Everyone that Seraph and friends spoke to agreed that life had greatly improved since the merge. So the city sent people out to, they show up like, hi, we're from this big city. We have a lot of soldiers, got a lot of people that need fed and stuff. We will buy your goods at a fair price. We will also maintain the roads between your city and our, your villages in our city so we can get the goods we need. And you pay just a small tax, and we will protect it. And you guys, if you run into a problem, you have the protection of the city as well. And we'll keep the, you know, basically, cops, whatever, uh, guarded along the roads as well. Keeping out thieves and brigands and all that kind of stuff. The merge had just happened, right? Everybody was freaked out by the merge. The land, had, the world had literally changed around them. So... Um, some of the worlds that were around might have been from more dangerous places, or maybe they had bad kings and queens, or whatever the case may be. They were under some type of, you know, really negative type of life situation. Here's one stepping like, we're going to pay you good prices for your stuff. You want to buy a lot of it, because we have a lot of mouths to feed. Uh, you're welcome to come in and sell your goods and buy from us what we have as well. We have craftsmen and things, and we'll help protect you. And what they charged was overwhelmingly less than any of those cities would have had to pay in another city. Uh, a very small amount. 
So they're like, well, it's hard to turn that down. And they're like, we'll give it a try. But it only worked successfully for them. The city started getting all the goods it needed from foods, mined things from mines outside, lumber, fishing. It's not on an ocean or anything like that, but there are multiple small uh, lakes and rivers in the area. Um, so there's not a huge uh, amount of fish that comes in. So if you're looking at pricing, fish is probably a little pricier than, say, beef or, or, or uh, venison because much more land than there is water. So fish is a little bit more of a delicacy here. Probably not important to the story, but geographically it would make sense. Um, it's just not any huge body waters. The closest is Tentacle Reef, but with it being over a week, week and a half away to get there to the, that water, a lot of stuff is just not going to be good by the time it gets there. Hard to transfer large amounts of fish and sea critters. No ice, right? I mean, it's traveling across warm lands. Not going to be easy to do that. But other things, like farmed goods, of course, with lots of rivers and streams and small lakes, it's not a problem for the farms to grow well. They have plenty of water. There's plenty of uh, animals. So there's farming with that. It's like beef and herds and all that kind of stuff. So definitely everyone in the area's lives had improved since the merge. This is one of those areas where that had happened. Um, and you can say that about a lot of different areas. Obviously, Serenity, right? They, were, they had a horrible life before Mercy and them came up. And you also have uh, Paxawal, who there's all these villages, did basically the same thing. Hey, we got an ocean here now, but we need goods. How about you be part of us? And they're like, okay. And they did. Um, so, and then you got places like Oromon, who just took places that around them. Oromon, again, still being one of the largest land chunks from an individual planet that anyone so far had seen on Merged World. So overall, everything was going very well for everybody. So people felt safe. Uh, what little criminal activity was being dealt with was dealt with by the cities, but the cities did not come into the village and start telling them what to do. They had their own small leaders. They had their, whatever the case may be, mayors or so on and so forth. Um, and as long as goods kept flowing and people were okay, nobody messed with each other. The three young men ran into several patrols of peacekeepers on the road. That's what they're called, peacekeepers. They were stopped and questioned, but the peacekeepers were always polite, yet professional, always letting them move on. It was made clear that all were welcome as long as they obeyed the law and started no trouble. Only once did Seraph ask a peacekeeper about the Oromanian soldiers. The peacekeepers became much more serious and asked many probing questions to determine why they had asked. Seraph could tell there was concern that there would be trouble, so Seraph never brought it up again. So I want to stress that it's not that they said something that the people are like, we know Ormond, why do you have a problem with Ormond? It's nothing like that at all. It's more of a, hey, we're looking for 20 people. And they're like, why are you looking for 20 people? Are they a problem? Are you a problem? Is there going to be a problem between you? You're asking about people we don't, we're not used to, I, I, they hadn't seen, or we didn't know, don't, don't look normal to us, if you will. 25 dudes all dressed in black, jetting across the land really fast. Probably something we should know. Is there a problem? So they got a little bit more questioning about it, but they still weren't overly hurtful. You know, put you in prison if you don't do what I tell you. Nothing like that at all. Hello, Sapanta. Sapanta is one of my uh, Twitch hangouters over there, followers a lot. Uh, so I've been writing the same Dungeons & Dragons story for 30 years, and every two weeks I get together and I tell the next part of it. So it's a storytelling stream. Uh, it's also an audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify for free, if you ever want to listen to it. This is episode 80, so we're chilling around 100 and 
80 to 200 hours worth of story at this point. Plot. So again, it's made clear, hey, you're welcome. People are welcome to travel through here because, you know, you might be bringing in goods. But if nothing else, you might be bringing in money to buy goods. Travelers are welcome. Um, but after that one time asking about Oromon, they decided, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to bring up Oromon specifically. It's probably best we don't even mention Oromon by name. Now, the three of them had made pretty good time, but at this point, they had pretty much resigned themselves to the fact that Ormon was going to reach the city before they caught up to them. Um, they, they just weren't going to be able to catch up in time. Um, and with the city being as large as it was, it was going to be very hard for them to find Ormon or Dina themselves. It's a very, very large place, right? And other than learning it's a big place, they, they don't know a whole lot about it. What kind of questions you ask? It's, it's a good thing. Nobody's at war, technically. Ruled by a royal family, but they're more figureheads. It's the senators that run everything, but everything's positive. Nobody has really problems. Doesn't that sound nice? Um, so they also now be searching for the Ormond soldiers. Of course, they're looking for Dina, her family, or potentially... Their, uh, their guide. They know very little about the guide. He just seems to be a relatively regular dude. Just taking them there. But once he got them to the city, supposedly, he was to basically drop them off into the hands of someone else, and he was to return home. But there's only one main highway through this area. And they've been watching. And so far, there's been no sign that he's on his way back. Either he's still in the city, stop them from coming back, or... Mystery answer. Anything. Hey, Tyler. Um, the other thing they have to remember, and this is a big thing that they've discussed, is that where they are now, most of the people they talk to have not heard of Serenity. Or heard it just like a whispers of, oh, yeah, I heard there's a kingdom somewhere named Serenity. Um, and it's going to be the same with Oromon, right? People aren't going to know who or what Oromon is. So... In lands like this, where neither of them are, are familiar or common, the average person's going to treat them the same. Ormond's not the evil empire to these people. Ormond's just a group of people, a kingdom. Whatever story or reason they give could be just as believable as what Seraph and Deacon give. So they have to be aware that if they are walking into a kingdom like this, they can't be the ones to instigate problems because the last thing they need is an entire city or kingdom taking Ormond's side. And that's, that's something that puts them in a rough spot, you know? They can't be too obvious about what they're doing. They can't go in and say, oh, Ormond's a horrible place that did all this stuff. They got no proof. You know? If Ormond came in and were super nice to people, they could be like, hmm, I don't know, they were pretty nice to people. You're the one here causing problems. That puts them in a bit of a bind as well. So as long as Ormond caused no trouble, they would probably be just as welcomed as anyone else. Of course, the big fear would be that Ormon somehow goes into some type of trade agreement or allies uh, with the kingdom or any kingdoms at this point. Uh, that's one thing that really pushed the southern kingdoms to start to come together officially was Ormon. They'd started a little bit, but then when Ormon first attacked the first war, uh, that, that made them jump into allies and kind of picking sides. And knowing how much of a threat Ormon was, it made sense to start bringing in as many kingdoms in that area on their side as possible. Again, there's still very little known 
about what is west of Oromon. The waters there's treacherous. And Oromon doesn't have a huge navy itself, but it does patrol those waters, and most small boats and such that go into those waters don't come back you know, for whatever reason. And because the water's treacherous, maybe it'd be Oromon. There's not a lot of people who, who go west. It's not an easy direction to go. It's from a nautical standpoint. With it being so much easier to go east, a lot of development, and especially Darsh and everything, is, has been focused more on east than he has west. Because west, he would have to cut through Corman. Or sorry, Kronayar, the Minotaur Kingdom. All right. So they realized that whatever that whatever goes on in the city, if there was to be a problem between them and Ormon, or there wasn't, they really need to let Ormon act first. You know, let them let them make the first mistake uh, in order to you know hopefully gain assistance by locals in that way. Um, one other thing they learned, and this is something, that, of course, Deacon would have questioned. There doesn't appear to be any organized mage. Uh, organization. There's no mage magic organization like the Brotherhood of Magic, which is over in the Southern Kingdoms and definitely going north. Uh, there's no presence of them over here specifically, um, and there's nothing in its place. Um, so are there mages? I'm sure. I mean, like, oh yeah, there's traveling mages, or there's a mage living in that town, but there's no large gathering or formal group of them in there. Um, so yeah, so they won't be able Deacon won't be able to seek assistance in that regard. Now the one place that they're going to have a potential hope is to go to a temple, right? If they can find a temple of light or a temple of good or whatever the case may be, saying, "Hey, a bunch of people who worship uh, the goddess of lies and deception are here." That I mean that's that's going to be the one group easiest to convince on their side. Um so that's definitely something they're going to be looking for. And they come across small temples of different gods and such as they pass through these towns. Most towns have some type of uh, small area designated as holy ground. And in those, and in those, uh, a lot of them are going to be generic. So it's a place of worship. You go in, you can worship whatever god you want, as long as they're not evil. That's pretty much the standalone in most areas. You're worshiping an evil god... You're mostly going to do so in, in, in hiding, with a couple exceptions. Uh, the most common evil god to be openly worshipped is the god of the ocean. You know what I mean? That just makes sense. You sail the oceans, you throw a little prayer his way, openly, one way or another. You don't really hide that. But aside from him, not so much. Um, so they're going to try to see if they can find a temple, and if everything looks friendly there, that could be a really good place to get some assistance. Um, the other thing they talk about is, as much as possible, they don't want to be talking about their true origins. Not only theirs, uh, but too much of Oromon's or, or, or Dina's, in case Oromon's watching for them as well. They go out there and they start asking people too much, like, hey, we're looking for Dean, and she came from this town over by Serenity, and I'm from Serenity, and so on and so on. They're going to be picky about who they tell what to, uh, because they may not be only, they're not the only one looking. Ormon is clearly here to find Dina. Last thing they want to do is give, her any, give them any help. Now, while they're sitting there by the fire and chatting, you know, um, Mugen, of course, asks, what happens when we find the bad guys? So he calls them the bad guys. He, he he struggles with the word Oromon. He keeps coming up with Amamon, 
Anamams, Aminamis. He, he has a hard times with Oramon. A lot of times he just calls them the bad guys. Uh, Deacon recommends that if they do happen to find signs of them and they're not made aware of Seraph and them and discover them, it might actually benefit them to follow Oramon and see if they can help lead them to Dina. If they are, they're here because they have some kind of information. There's no way Ormond would just pick this city out of the countless places they could have gone east. Uh, they're here because for some reason they know Dina is, was, or was going to be here. Um, so maybe they have information that Seraph doesn't. Might benefit them. Um, they still have Dina's hair clip, if you remember. The hair clip, that helps point the direction. Now, that spell does have a time limit. It will get weaker over time. Um, where they are right now, it still shows that she's heading the direction of the road. But as they go into villages and they, as they get into the big city, remember, the more people around, the less that helpful that's going to be. Out here, sitting by the campfire, you can pull the little thing out and he can see the line heading in the direction they're going. So at least at some point, she went that way. So there is that confidence. We know we are still following her. We just don't know how long ago, shape she's in, who she was with. It only tells us she went that way. Seraph doesn't like the idea of having to follow Oramon to try to find Dina. He'd much rather, you know, get in there and find out what they know. But she, he agrees from common sense point of view. That's, yes, your idea is much better. I'd rather go in and flog the hell out of them until they tell me what, you know, everything they know. But it makes way more sense to do what you're saying. And uh, Moomin, so they're, they're kind of all in agreement and that's their plan then. And Mugen asks, and what happens if they find Dina first? And then Seraph very coldly goes, then we take her back. By whatever means that. Plans made, goals achieved, they settle themselves in for the night, prepare to So, so it takes a couple days for them to get to Medronil. They don't run into any more problems between now and then. And getting to Medronil itself, very easy. The closer they get, the better the roads are. The wider the roads are. Just much more traffic. Pass by peacekeepers, by just regular people going to and from. Um, everybody's politely friendly. What you'd expect. Nothing seems ominous. Everything's politely friendly. Sorry, I'm very thirsty. Um, they make their way in. Let me grab this. So the great city of Medronol was itself a city within a city. The original city long ago grew past its great walls to the point that the outer city was much larger than the center. The royal family, if they could even be called that, lived in the very center. The Featherflame's ancestor, Drigal Featherflame, had led a great exodus of people from the north back on their homeworld and settled the land here centuries past. They were basically rulers in name only, overseeing holidays, special events, but in reality, the city was governed by a council of seven senators, each of them hailing from one of the city's seven sections, or boroughs, as they were known. It seemed that each of these boroughs were very loyal to its people, so much so that fighting between them was quite common. Allegiances switched regularly, and open animosity was a regular occurrence. A light rain fell on Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen as they arrived at the city. Both Seraph and Mugen wore coats and hoods to help hide their unusual appearances. It was best to not draw any attention for as long as possible. 
The streets were crowded despite the weather. Most folks seemed to be in good spirit, and very little attention came their way. At the entry of the city, they were asked the standard questions, reasons for visiting, how long would you be there, where will you be staying, and questions of the like. It seemed more of a routine for the guards than any actual interest. Since the great merging of worlds over 20 years earlier, it had become common for travelers to pass through cities, with many being quite exotic in race or dress. You can imagine that, all these new worlds together, right? A lot of people, much like Mercy and Dandy and Darsh way back in the day, trying to figure out what caused the merge. Is there a way to get home to our friends and family on our own world? A lot of people did that. And as time moves on, people are getting more settled in the world that they're in. Uh, but there's still going to be those people out there who are just exploring the world because it's new or still seeking signs of loved ones or, or, or way back home. Uh, and not everybody looks normal. And I say normal by what the average races of humans, dwarves, elves, halflings, right? These are what most people expect to see. Minotaurs in many worlds were, were very rare occurrence. So when Kronayar popped up, it's a large force of Minotaur there that, that gave people a lot of pause. But outside of that, there are, of course, many, many other very exotic races. Um, and many of these races you expect to find in dragons, right? There's a lot of different types of things out there you can have. Draven is a half vampire, half demon. Seraph, half elf, half vampire. One quarter vampire, one quarter demon. Very strange math on Seraph. But there's a lot of things out there. We, we've, we've met Thrycreens in the past. Uh, we met the little folks that had the space gem. That was a different... Centaurs. There's a lot of different types of things popping up. And sometimes they will come through the city. So it's not completely unusual for a strange-looking person to pass through town. Uh, so much so that unless you're just horrendously looking different. A hill giant comes walking up or somebody with a rhinoceros head. I can't, I don't think there's a race with a rhinoceros head. But, Smurge Worlds, maybe there will be in the future. Uh, but, you know, something like that's going to stand out a little more than normal. But Seraph, Mugen, and Deacon pass through just... Deacon continued to do most of the speaking. He told the guards they were travelers exploring the new world. They gave him directions to a couple of inns nearby and then allowed him to pass. Kind of like we just talked about. That's a very common thing. Hey, we're young. I mean, they're all born after the merge, and it's easy to see that. Maybe not so much on Seraph, since it's a little bit harder to know his age. But for most folks, it's easy to say, you know, hey, we were born here. We're just exploring this new world. It's a common profession nowadays. Adventurers are always wanted somewhere. Always monster, a dragon, or a lich, or something out there you gotta deal with. Um, so adventurers is still a very common profession. Bounty hunters. And in this world, of course, there's the, the entire class of hunters, which are those that hunt the undead. Although they've not seen many signs of anyone that looks like hunters. In this. Also not a lot of reports of undead. So, <laughs> hand in hand, right? Not a lot of undead, don't need a lot of hunters. So, probably at least one or two kicking around in case of an emergency, right? Um... So they allowed them to pass, and they got the name of some inns, like, okay, we'll check them out. The first thing they noticed was how old the city looked. Many of the buildings looked like they'd been built centuries earlier. Newer homes and businesses were built around and even connecting to these older buildings, causing a very large clash of architectural themes. You can imagine that. You're walking through, and here's an old 
really fancy building and such, and then something much more modern built right next to it, you know? Uh, so a lot of times it looks like that. The old architecture versus new next, it gives a very large hodgepodge of different looks, which of course has become even more common since the merge as new races bring their architecture into worlds and groups that people have not seen it before. Um, so these, a lot of these buildings look very, very old. Um, more so than what these guys are, are, are used to seeing. And they've only ever been to Firemoon, Arduel, and here. When you look at big cities, I mean, we're not going to count Sharptooth. That's very different. They've been to Darsh. That's also very different. Um, but they really haven't been to a lot of cities. So this one definitely stands out because they've never been to Paxwell. Uh, of old versus new, very much clashing together. The pre-merge and post-merge kind of look. As they made their way down the streets, it didn't take long to notice that most everyone they saw had a colored sash tied around their waist. The vast majority appeared to be wearing green, while several small groups were wearing blue, white, or orange, and even red. They noticed a group of four dwarves exiting a general goods store, all wearing red sashes. At first, they guessed that the sash maybe showed race or social class. But as they watched, they saw humans, dwarves, and elves sometimes wearing the same colors. So, something simple, no real designs on it, just a green piece of cloth tied on the side, wearing it as a sash. A lot of people happen to be wearing that. Mostly green is what they're seeing. They see some dwarves wearing red, but over there's a dwarf wearing green. There's an elf and a human together, both wearing blue, but there's another elf wearing orange. So, it's very clear, okay, these aren't marks for what race you are, you know, because... Racism in a world like this, very something that has to be dealt with. We hate elves. We, there doesn't appear to be any of that associated with the colors. And in fact, they don't see anybody race-wise appearing to give dirty looks or anything like that because of someone's race. Now, it also appeared that not everyone wore a sash, specifically folk who appeared to be from outside the city, such as the farmers, merchants, and tradesmen that go in and out uh, to bring, deliver, or sell their goods. Uh, the uh, three young men agreed to find out the purpose of the sashes as soon as possible, because clearly it was important. You walk into a city and you're like, okay, I see hundreds of people and they're all wearing a sash of some kind, except for the few people that are coming into town and leaving out of town. And the guards, and that's another one. You don't see any of them on anybody that's city officials. It's really just more on the people. They saw no signs of the Oromanians that were their quarry, but that was not surprising. The city was huge and had multiple inns, as well as several different ways to enter it. Finding them would be no easy feat. There's not just one gate to get in. There are several around. The Oromanians could have literally come in another direction and have never once been in the area that they're standing in. They have, at most, two days ahead of them, so they may not have had a chance to get around the whole city themselves either. It's a big place. Suddenly, Mugen grabbed their attention, pointing to a couple of gullies running across the street and dashing into an alley. He looked at Deacon and Seraph, his smile beaming. <coughs> Excuse me. Mugen had seen very few gullies on their journey so far. They were much more common in larger cities, where sewers, old buildings, and food was plentiful. Gullies were considered a nuisance race by most other races and barely tolerated. They were notoriously unintelligent and lived in a state of barely surviving, living off of the trash and leftovers by many of the other races. 
New Gully, where Mugen was born, was an exception. The Gnome Warrior Fig was a leader of a huge Gully nation where he had taught the Gullies how to fight and defend themselves and how to survive. Mugen was always excited to see others of his race. Deacon made a mental note to see if they could find time for Mugen to talk with them. Mugen had never once complained on their journey, nor spoke of missing his home. He had an infectiously happy demeanor and never failed to improve the group's mood, even Seraph's. Still, if Mugen missed his home even half as much as Deegan missed his own, then their, their little friend would likely benefit greatly with some time with the other gullies. Let me guess that there are seven different colors of sashes. You are correct, Michael! <laughs> After a short time, they came upon an inn named the Battered Barrel. It was of decent size and appeared well-kept, so they decided to look into the price of a room. A young man took their horses to the stables, and they made their way inside. The building, as well, had multiple banners inside and out, matching the green sashes that they'd seen many people wearing. Inside, they found the common room clean, warm, and well-kept. There were several other patrons eating or drinking at the bar and several of the tables around it. Other than a few curious glances, Seraph and his friends were mostly ignored. They took a seat at an empty table near the fireplace to dry off. Within a few moments, a young human woman came to their table. They purchased some drinks and warm food and arranged for a room for the next three days. The barmaid was pleasant and paid them no undue notice or appeared curious about them. Again, these are, these are important things that they're going to be watching for. Do people look like they're looking for me? Does that person give me a side glance? Is anybody here like, you know, we heard of a white-haired guy that could be here, and everybody's looking, it's just a white-haired guy. They're not seeing anything of that, and that's something they're going to be watching for, while at the same time trying to not look like they look like they're looking, right? Uh, it's a very thin line that they have to walk there. Uh, the waitress comes out, barmaid, whatever, takes their order for their meal, whatever, drinks, sure, okay, yeah, you want a room? Yeah, I'll make arrangements, leaves. No unusual attention, uh, not unfriendly by any means. Like, oh, what can I get you guys? Welcome to town. Oh, you need a room? Sure. It was the kind of conversation you'd expect her to have with any person that walked in there. Nothing seemed out of place or forced or overly trying to pry information from them. So I definitely want to stress that. At, at no point does it look like the city's been waiting for Seraph to come walking in. There's absolutely nothing that would imply that at all. When she returned to their uh, returned with their drinks, Deacon used the opportunity to ask about the green sash she wore, saying that they were travelers and curious. She hesitated for a moment, but then shrugged her shoulders and pulled up a chair. You know, kind of that, uh, okay, fine, here, pulls it like a resignation, ah, fine, I'll talk about it. Her name was Angeline, and she'd lived her entire 23 years in Medronome. She explained that the city was sectioned into seven parts, which she called boroughs. Each of the boroughs also had a representative called a senator that represented them on the city's council. Boroughs were very close and a point of quite a bit of pride to their members. It also seemed that there was a long history of violence between them as well. Each borough had a street gang that was known to cause trouble with each other. Many people wore the sashes to show their alliance. Many boroughs had tentative alliances with other boroughs, uh, some of the other boroughs, and there were some uh, rules that no borough dared break. So she's like, kind of what we're talking about. Okay, yeah, there's seven sections of the cities. They've all got a senator. You know, they grew out for whatever reasons. Doesn't get much into the history of it. But there's seven sections. They all have their own color. They all have a name as well, which we'll get into as we move into talking more about the boroughs. Um, 
And many of them have a represent kind of like a crest, an animal or a tree, you know, that type of thing. There's going to be a symbol for each one. Um, and so Angelique, again, she's just telling this as if someone who doesn't know, oh, yeah, this is what you see. And for most people, it's like, yeah, I'm part of green team. Yay, that's me. You know, at the same time, mm, blue team, gross. You know, it's, it's not like I'm going to see blue team, so I'm going to stab them. It's not that type of open animosity for most of the people. But she mentions the street gangs. There are two levels to a borough. There's those in charge, senator and the, you know, uh, a lot of times going to be merchant lords or you know, big businessmen, the bankers, whatever the case, the people that make the official legal decisions. And then there are the people that actually run the streets, right? The one that may, you know, and it could go good and bad. They may pickpocket amongst their own people. They're more likely going to target someone who's not theirs. Um, and if, they, if they're the type of person, street gangs, you find out that someone of your borough was messed with, that's when the two gangs can sometimes end up going to war, uh, messing with each other's good. You know, they're the ones who are going to be hired by their borough's businesses to protect them, make sure you don't break into my warehouse, nobody breaks into my store at night. You know, you're not going to find a lot of street gang green members breaking into green businesses. That makes sense. Very protective of their own, but more than willing to mess with the other ones. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Where was I? Angelina's name was called from the kitchen and she excused herself. Seraph and Deacon and Mugen keep saying that. I was calling the guys. The guys discussed this new revelation. So they're like, okay, all right. And she does mention that you don't have to be. Anyone, even and even someone with a different side, it's not like you can't go into the other boroughs. And that's that's another thing I want to stress. They saw people of all the different ones in there, right? There's going to be common areas like the market that's in the center of the city where the, you know, because the center of the city is the size of a city. In the middle of that is where the royal family lives. It's going to be business, big buildings, probably the fine old buildings where now that's the fancy area of town kind of. Um, just being someone who wears orange doesn't mean I'm not going to do business with my neighbor who wears green. You know what I mean? For the average Joe, it's like being fans of a sports team that maybe bump heads a little bit and mock each other, whatever the case may be. Um, but for some of those people, it's a way of life. And that's a little different. You know, they will cause, if you, I see you're muscling in on our turf, blah, 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 that kind of thing. But again, I want them to be, understand that there's two levels of this. So hearing this, they're like, okay, well, we need to be extra careful when dealing with the locals, Right. We don't need to anger any particular group, nor at any time try to show bias, right? If we seem like we're doing too friendly with green, blue might not help us, and blue may have the information we need about Dean or the Oromanians. You know, at the same time, we don't, you know, we don't want to make anybody angry either way as well, because that cuts that off. So they got to be real neutral and careful when dealing with these. At least that, that's what they're assuming at this point. Um, so for the time being, this is something they discussed, they're not going to ask any of the politicians or any of the guards. They're not going to anybody official and asking about Oramon or Dina. At this point, they don't want to bring that kind of attention at that level to their search. You know, again, somebody in somebody's pocket, it's more likely to be higher than lower level people. So if they do get into a spot where they have to explain what they're doing, uh, their idea is that they're going to use a cover story that they're actually supposed to meet Oramon here. 
they're here to meet Ormon, and unfortunately, the Ormons haven't shown up. We're starting to be concerned. Yes. No, we're not from Ormon, but we're supposed to meet them here. That seems a lot nicer. Oh, yes, we're travelers, and so on and so forth. We're traveling through, and I'm meant to meet with some friends from another land far to the east. Oh, okay. Well, if I see them, I'll tell them you're here. Or if I see them, I'll let you know. That kind of thing. Ashley says, I vote they talk to the gullies. Gullies know things. Not a bad idea. Maybe. <laughs> um, the meal was pretty good, and the drinks were even better. The three men ate mostly silently, using the opportunity to listen to the conversations around them and watch people's interactions. Conversations that they heard seemed normal, and nothing special was really learned over the several hours they hung out there. At one point, though, two men wearing blue sashes entered. They were picking up something, uh, some kind of goods, and while they waited, everyone else was quiet and stared at them with dark looks, until they finally left with their package. So, here's Blue specifically comes in, and these greens are like... Looking at them, like, hmm... Even a dirty looks and people aren't talking as loud, it gets a little more quiet. It's going to be noticeable until they finally leave. A few minutes after they leave, a man sitting at the bar turns to the barkeep and says, you know, asking, Amos, why are you doing business with those blue bastards? He says it kind of slowly. And you can picture that the guy at the bar is kind of the guy, like Norm. He's the guy that's always at the bar. Everybody knows him. I'm always at this bar. Why are you messing with this? Why are you working with the blues? What's up with that? Amos is standing there wiping out a cup, you know, because they don't believe in washing. They just wipe it out with an old tower. They've wiped every other one out with. Not the cleanest of places. But they're sitting there wiping the, the mug out. He's like, hey, he's like, settle down, Jeb. Their money's as good as everyone else's. <laughs> Jeb does not seem to like that response. He's like, he goes, huh, like, you know, one of those, hmm, guffaws. I like to call that a guffaw. I like a guffaw. I like to give a guffaw not to visit. Because, yeah, but you know what they did to Durbin. Amos very quickly says, Shut up and shut your mouth. Got no proof of anything like that. And you don't mean you're going around making claims until you can back it up. We're going to go around here starting unnecessary trouble. And none of us need that. And grumbles back into his beer and so on and so forth. That's the only thing that happens that kind of gets their attention. Like, oh, okay. Green, at least some of the greens, think someone from Blue did something. There's someone named Durbin. Okay. Is that important? I don't know, but it shows that there could be some head bonking there. That's something to remember. Evening, by the time they read there, it was early to midday. Uh, they eat, hang out and such, and they're very tired from the journey. They decide to get some rest so they can start looking seriously tomorrow. Seraph, more than all of them, wants to start right now, but Deacon's like, listen... You're not if you're not well rested, you could slip up or you may not be in your full capabilities when it comes time to help Dina. Using those type of things that very often will get Seraph to go along, which with the what is the more reasonable plan and the less uh, emotionally charged plan. Like, hey, you want to be top? You're top when it comes time to save her. Yeah. Go to bed. You know, that kind of thing. So there's that. <sighs> Next morning, they get up, go to the common room, get them a bite to eat, that kind of stuff. Quick bite before they head out in the day. Well, they're in there. There's hardly anybody else in there. None of the patrons from the evening before. Not a lot of people who are drinking in the morning. It's mostly one or two tables with a couple of people who woke up like they did, get a bite to eat. Some of them may be leaving, some of them may not. Um, 
they use this as an opportunity because uh, Angeline wasn't there. Just Amos brought them their food this morning, and they use this as a chance. Amos is, by way, of course, barmaid and owner. I mean, that's made clear. Um, but uh, they use that opportunity to kind of talk to him a little bit. Well, hey, Amos, uh, sorry to bother you. Uh, Amos, right? Yeah, Amos, okay. Um, hey, we're looking for some friends that came into town in the last few days. We just got here, and unfortunately, we don't really know the town that well. Uh, and wondered maybe if, if you'd seen them come through there. And they describe approximately what the Ormanians look like without describing how evil they look. Yeah, it gets pretty good. Oh, yeah, they, you know, a lot of times they're from a country where a lot of black, uh, you know, uh, maybe 20, 25 of them traveling together, something like that. Uh, Amos is, you know, chatting with them as such, and, you know, friendly conversation as he's bringing food coming back and forth. And he's like, no, I'm not seen anyone like that pass through here at all. I haven't heard anybody talking of a big group of people like that. And a group like that would kind of stand out. Goes back to the kitchen for whatever. Seraph, speaking of moving, are very concerned that this was going to be the case. They're worried that not only not only is it going to be hard to find Ormon, um, but what if they didn't come in as a group? This is something they've considered very early on. What if some point before they got here, they broke up and came in in smaller groups? Or what if they came in looking very different than they normally do? And who worship Pandora, goddess of lies and deceit. Making looking like themselves, disguising things of that nature falls right into their forte. So it would be very easy for someone of that nature, and some of the magics and clerical magic they have are very illusionary based. They may look completely different, which is another reason why they're very loosely describing the people they're looking for. Hey, Anzo, how goes it, sir? Uh, so there's there's a lot of that concern that maybe what we're looking for it's going to be harder to find from that angle because maybe it's not 25 people we're looking for, 25 individuals who came in separately or groups of two or groups of three. They spent some time in there chatting with Amos again, learning a little bit more about the city, a little information. They, you know, get some... He kind of draws out, here's the different areas, here's the city, you know, he's drawing it on the table with his finger kind of thing and explain, you know, what the city layout is like for. And he mentions, well, you know, if, I mean, if you're really looking for some help finding your friends, you can always go talk to Lazel. Like, who's Lazel? Lazel, someone who would know things? And they're like, Lazel knows everything that goes on, at least in this city, this section of the city, probably many of the others. Lazel's, let's just say that he's an important person on the streets here in the green section of the You know, you go ask Lazel. If anybody knows or seen anything, he'd be the one to ask. When you get down there, tell him Amos sent you. And I know you at first, but I've known Lazel a long time. He'll at least chat with you. Know how much help it'll be, but if anybody knows, it could be him. They're like, okay, well, we appreciate that. Thank you very much. And they get a, a rough uh, directions on how they could go about finding him. Say that there's a, a knife store shop roads in this section because again each each borough is the size of a small city itself and 
this section, there's a road over there. There's a bunch of craftsmen. Uh, go into the, the knife shop known as the uh, Bladeheads Knives and Cutlery. Uh, it'll be what you're looking for. He's like, okay, we appreciate that. Amos, a very nice, friendly gentleman. Does not strike them as trying to send them on a wild goose chase or send them anywhere nefarious. He legit looks like he's trying to. Okay. So, there. I just realized something. Give me. Sorry, one of the things is messed up on my screen. That's okay, I'll fix it later. <laughs> so, uh, like, okay, that's one of the things they're looking to do. They also, of course, asked about the temple. And he's like, oh, yes, you're going to visit the temple, give them direction, and it's more towards the center of the city. Uh, it's just off the, the center, just outside of the main walls, that new city and old city. Uh, it's, it's a good-sized temple, and it's a general temple. It's not dedicated to one specific god. And they're like, okay, that works. That We'll head out that way then. They take that information and stuff from Amos. Like, okay, we've got a couple places to start looking. Now this morning, it's a, a little bit warmer, sunnier. It's not really raining. Um, but Seraph and Mugen are still keeping their hoods pulled up as much as possible. Keep Seraph's hair out of the way and his slightly paler skin. And then Mugen's just tattoos and mohawk. Mugen could very easily be taken for a gnome or small dwarf. Um, until you see his, his face is where you can really tell what a gully dwarf looks like. And he's half gnome. So he's got a little bit there that helps as well. Uh, so with the hood on, he just looks like a gnome. Most people would just assume that he's... And he's got the tattoos all over him. And some of those stick out. He's not walking around wrapped up like the mummy or nothing. But he is uh, definitely you know, covering the wild hair and such as much as... So they make their way first. They decide they're going to hit the temple first. Uh, this laser guy might be helpful, but they still think Kemperl is one place they might be able to find people they can trust. And you can understand that Seraph is always going to have that kind of thing in the back of the mind, right? Ah, uh, the temple is a safe place. We can go there and find help because he was raised in one. He was, you know, and not to say that there are bad temples out there, but, you know, some of them may not be as nice as Serenity, as friendly and such. But he's always going to have that kind of, uh, I just say, I can't think of a word to decide it. Uh, always have that uh, mental insecurity that when he gets there, he's going to see another temple of Serenity. And sometimes they don't live up to his uh, expectations. They do arrive and they realize that it's a it's a it's a fairly good sized temple. It does nowhere near matches anything that they saw in they have in Serenity, of course, but it's on par, if not even a little bit bigger than the one in Arduel that they got to see. And Arduel had a fairly good sized temple as well. So, like, okay, this one's a pretty big one. And they make their way in. There are, of course, some Templars hanging out front. The Templars are not wearing any type of clothing or armor that would designate them as Templars of a specific god. This is not unusual. You can just be a Templar of a temple, right? Um, the way Templars work as a class is they're, they're a fighter offshoot, fighter priest merge offshoot. They don't really, they'll have one or two little tiny granted powers that they can, can get more powerful over time, uh, but they're very, very light. Um, if you are a general Templar, you don't have any granted power. You are someone who's like, this is my city, and I'm taking a job protecting the temple. My name is Earl. I mean, there may not, I mean, it's not, he's not, I've dedicated my life to the gods. He's like, I have a job to protect. 
It's like a city guard. They're like, I have a job to protect this kingdom. But it's a job. Dedicated, fall, you know, heads over feet and worship of the king and queen. Although they're going to be those that are, right? You think about that. You get people who are hardcore. Yes, we serve the king and queen by their leave. And then some people's like, hey man, I'll fight for them as long as the money's good. Templars can be the same way. So finding a neutral Templar usually just means that's someone hired to protect the place. It's not someone who's dedicated their lives. Uh, those who dedicate their lives, you're going to find in usually large temples, Templars dedicated to specific gods, or traveling in the accompaniment of a same cleric. One of the more common jobs is a Templar who protects a cleric. Not that a cleric has to have one. Or a Templar can't be traveling alone. Still doable. But very commonly you'll find them much. So they make their way to the temple. There's nothing bars them from going in. Templars don't ask him any questions. They notice there's a fair amount of Templars, but not more than you'd expect. They get inside, and one of the first things that hits them is that they see that, you know, there's the stuff for all the gods of good and neutrality. And there's always going to be some symbols up that show they acknowledge the gods of evil, but not that they're really welcome or worship here. But the entire pantheon is usually represented in any temple, good or evil. Um, and so when they get in there, they're looking around, they're like, okay, it looks very general. It's what we would expect. Even Serenity is a, is a general temple to a degree, but it is very much heavy skewed to Tavian god of, of clerics or healing. So it definitely has that on with the blue stone and all of that kind of thing. Uh, it's it's it still very much sways that way, even though there are parts of it that are general because anybody. Um, the second thing that they notice is there's not a lot of people here. That stands out very quickly to them. They're like as big as the city is, not seeing a lot of clerics walking around. See a few. I'm talking to some people over there. That one's reading a story to some kids. This one's helping some old lady who's coughing a whole bunch. No clerics of the regular gods. Um, but most of the clerics they see are of more of a neutral, with maybe a cleric of light, cleric of healing walking around. But with their knowledge and, and Seraph's upbringing, it's easy for them to say, okay, that's a low-level cleric. But it's not an arch or arch cleric or something like that. A low-level cleric. I don't see a lot of high-level clerics walking around. But they do ask, and they're like, hi, we're travelers, so on and so forth. Wondering if we could speak to someone kind of in charge or some temple. And they're directed uh, to spot, uh, speak to a cleric of knowledge, right? Cleric of knowledge, that is the head god of neutrality. And head priest, Arena, uh, Arena is actually how I pronounce it, Arena, uh, is a half elf who is the head of this temple. With most half-elves, it's very hard to know how old they are, you know, because from the age of 25, 30 to, like, 100, they look the same. You know, it's not until after they get over 100 to 125 you start to see the signs of old age kicking in, because elves, half-elves don't live anywhere near as long as elves do. Um, but she's right in that middle area, so it's very hard for them to see. She's a cleric of knowledge. Um, and she welcomes them in and says, yeah, here, let's have a seat over here by this fountain that's that's going you know it's a lot of open space we can have a conversation here there's nobody around to really hear us a couple of templars in the corner but they're no problem they sit down and they introduce themselves now right out of the gate this is one person that they're going to be honest with about who they are 
Seraph just can't find it within him to lie to a clearing. It's like, you know, it's like, I'd, 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 you know, unless I'm in a spot where it's going to be, I have to, to save somebody I love's life, I'm going to avoid lying to a cleric as much as I could. It's like lying to his mom. He's just not cool with that. And here's a half-elf woman cleric. He's like, ugh, just getting a little tiny bit of flashbacks here. It's a little bit uncomfortable. I've got to tell this woman the truth. And so they begin by telling their story. They leave some of the specifics out. Pirates. Things like that. Who Dina really is. Um... But they do say that she they're they're trying to find someone uh, who is being chased by a group of Oromanians that come in here. Cleric's like, okay, I've never heard of Oromanians, but I have heard whispers of serenity. Or at least there's a great temple there with a lady of the temple. It's very famous. And Sarah's like, does not come clear with, hey, she's my mom. How do you really prove that at this point, right? Especially when someone's never even really knows much about Artemis. He's like, yes, that's the city that we're from. And Oromon is an evil city dedicated to the worship of Pandora. And they're here looking for this young woman. Uh, we're trying to save her and get her home because they want her for nefarious reasons. Now, neutral cleric stays neutral, but they still don't like the thoughts of evil people doing evil things, right? Like, ah, Pandora. Ugh, that's a problem. No, I don't need a big group of Pandorans walking in here causing trouble in this city. A, it's kind of my job to fight against. It's also her job to fight against good clerics. And that's a very hard spot for a neutral cleric to be. Cleric of Knowledge is one of the most pure neutral clerics that there is. Uh, that one, time, many of them, war. War actually almost, if anything, skews a little bit more evil. But knowledge is pure, pure neutral. So they're like, well, I don't want to help either. I'm going to stay out of it. But I also don't want a bunch of people in here chasing after someone and forcing them to do something they don't want to do or kidnap. You know, that's still not okay with us. We wouldn't want a good person doing that either. We don't want an evil person doing that. So that's not good. And a large group of Pandorans uh, could definitely askew things. At a temple like this, they still lean towards good and neutral way farther than they lean dark or evil. So... Head priestess, she's like, Oh, this is a problem. Okay, I'm glad you came to me with this. Thank you very much. You're from Serenity. And Deacon is over, I'm the Prince of Firemen. Like, he's not even, he didn't hide his stuff at all. Seraph doesn't have a title, right? He's not officially anything, he's just a guy. Mom does not give him any type of title just because she's a cleric. So it's very, very, you know, he can't, it's like, Oh, and my mom's the head cleric. Who, who knows? But, this guy can be like, yeah, I'm the Prince of Fire Moon. I got all the holy, I got all the symbols and holy, you know, uh, royal seals and stuff in my pouch. You want to see this stuff? I will openly tell you I'm the Prince of Fire Moon. And if you don't think I am, you just send a letter, or get me, get call my dad. He'll tell you, you know, that kind of a thing. Disrupting the balance. That's exactly correct, Ashley. Neutrality wants the balance to stay maintained. Um, and to be honest, nine times out of ten. It's the size, side of darkness that's trying to mess up the balance. Not always. Sometimes you've got those holier-than-thou groups out there trying to clamp down and stop everything that is a perceived evil, which is very different than actual evil. Evil and perceived evil are very different things. And trying to destroy things just because they are a perceived evil can actually be worse. So they definitely don't want the disruption of the balance. It's a great way to put that. So, 
they ask, hey, they don't, I, don't, I don't see a lot of clerics here. What's going on? I mean, I'm not to say, you know, you're bad. You know, it's like, I'm smell here. Is the food bad? Like, you know, why is why I don't see that there's a, for this temple being as large as it is. Uh, and Aaron is like, well, you know, um, I've lived here for 12 years. Since I've been here, things have only gotten worse. Now, she can say that temple itself gets some people. Most of the people that come to the temple are just people who swing on by asking for a blessing or to tithe a few coins to, you know, hopefully gain the uh, positive outlook of the god of their choice. But a lot of people from outside of towns would come in here. Most of the people in the boroughs, there are small homes of worship there that aren't really places that clerics are, uh, but they're places where people can go to do that or gather together and sing songs, do hymns, regardless of their god. So a lot of people do that within their own borough. Um, years and years before, there was a point where they were trying to do it all together, but fights started breaking out. And it's then that anything that was considered holy land, anything that's sufficiently designated as a temple or place of worship, which are very well decorated to give that, you don't know ones by accident. You walk by it, you're like, that's a place where people pray. Got the symbols on it, it's got the sign on it. We know that that's the place that is for all intents and purposes holy land. We don't cause problems there, we rob them, hurt anybody there. Do not mess with that building or that land at all. That stay, we stay away from it. And that is that became a rule that everybody sat down and worked that out. The senators actually sat down with the borough chiefs or borough lords or borough captains, whatever that borough calls themselves. They're like, listen, we need this to stop. We can't have people being afraid to go to the temple and then nobody's worshiping the gods and then all the gods get mad at this entire city and we all lose. The type of world, you know, you gotta think of, this type of world where gods can be like, why well, you stop worshiping me? I will punish you for this. Gods actually do stuff and get involved in these things. Clearly, look at Seraph's life. So like, we do not need to anger all the gods by fighting during church time. So we want these places to be 100% nothing bad happens here. And all of them agreed to that. It was important because they want their people to have a place safe like that. You know, if the whole thing breaks into war and they get the children, women and children or whatever back into the church place and know that they're going to be safe there, they need to know that that's going to be kept that way. And it is kept that way. And the few times ever since that that has been broken... Every borough comes down on them. It's like every borough is like, okay, for today only, we are all one group and that person's got to die. And they make very big examples of the very few situations that's happened. And it was bloody and it was not fast. People learned quickly, this is not a rule you break. It is the one thing that will bring all the boroughs together and be like, nah, you broke one of the big rules. Even your own borough will turn you in because they don't want all the boroughs. Imagine if you're red, if you will. You're in the red borough and some turd you don't know really well goes in and robs or assaults cleric in there. And now five or six other boroughs hate you because of it. Man, this is the guy. Take him. We agree 100%. Do what you feel is right. He has lost any relationship or any type of loyalty from us. He is basically clanless for all points for all purposes. Do with him what you will. Because the last thing you want is, you know, no borough will survive if the other six team up against. Um, and so that, that becomes a very teeter-totter point. But that's a place that's safety. And, and the cleric high priestess here is explaining all that. 
But because of that, people started spending more and more time in their own little places of worship in their boroughs. The temple itself gets less and less visitors. Less and less clerics come to the city, and there's just not a lot of them there at this point. Few clerics stay very long. Or also, there's a second reason. Many clerics who visit or come to the city feel the presence or aura of some kind of darkness that seems to cast a shadow over the city. And they're like, what kind of darkness? And she goes, I, I don't know. Because I've never felt that. And many clerics don't, but occasionally someone will come through and they'll be like, I'm going to leave because there's something, something wrong here. And she goes, and I'll tell you, it's, it's never like the same God. You know what I mean? It's not like everybody of healing or everybody of the light. Sometimes it's a neutral cleric. Sometimes it's a good cleric. You don't ever get any evil cleric. This doesn't happen. So they're like, you know, so it's not like something's against Tavian or something's against Minara, goddess of light. It's just some people feel a creepy aura of something here is wrong. I don't feel right here. I need to leave. So as been here 12 years, she's one of the longest served clerics in the city at this point. So learning about Oromon now with Pandora's and loyal Pandora worshippers coming into the city, you can imagine like, oh, Lord, that's all I need is imagine if this shadow thing the whole time that nobody can find is some type of like secret Pandora sect. And Seraph and Deacon are sitting there like, God, please don't add that to, don't say that. Don't, don't add that kind of trouble to our life. We do not need a secret Pandora sect in this city that Oramon is now teamed up with. And she's like, I don't either. And so I'm going to help you every way I can. I agree with you 100%. This is a problem. And to be honest with you, it's more important for me to help you find the young lady you're looking for. And, he, and she's like, my responsibility is to the people. People of this city, serve the God of knowledge and make sure that people get to live their life in the pursuit of knowledge unmolested. And if you find this young lady and you take her, logic says they'll leave too. I can help you find this young lady and you leave, they will probably leave too. And that takes that problem out of my city and make, it benefits me to help you in this. You know, just to be straight up honest, it helps me to help you. And so, yes, I will do what I can. I will reach out through clerics that I trust and through people that I know. I, I've been here a while. I have my own people that I can talk to and see if I can find out anything about companions, anyone else asking about the young lady. Or the young lady and anybody they describe her and all family looks like. So they're like, that is awesome. Yes, thank you very much. We very much appreciate your help in any way. Like I, it may take the city's large, and it, you know, I'm gonna send messages out through some of the clerics here to again to places and people I trust. It may be a couple of days before I hear anything back. They're like, we appreciate any help you can give us. Here's where we're staying at the inn. Please feel free to send someone to get us. If you anything, if you learn anything or anything, you tell us we will make a beeline here in a heartbeat. So with this all set up, there's kind of a little bit of an alliance kind of going on here. They're both working in their best interest. So again, it's not like for the cleric in this situation, it's A, maintain the balance, B, main, maintain the safety for all of the people of this city. Not like, a, yes, I'll help you, Seraph. It's yes, I'll help my city. 
by helping you, Sarah. And they don't talk about Sarah's the woman I love. They say she's one woman who's in trouble. They're trying to get her and we're trying to save her. They don't go any deeper than that. Although she knows, right? Like she's a high priestess and this young guy talks. This you know, his eyes go a flutter when he's describing what she looks like. And he's like, this dude has got the hots for this young man. He, I can tell this, this young man is in love with this woman. He's clearly here to save her. Whatever. Okay, I'm going to help where I can. Obviously not super evil because she'd have sent that him walking onto temple grounds. We've talked in other previous episodes of what it's like for someone of dark magic or dark cleric to actually walk on holy ground without permission. Uh, it's not pleasant, and it goes both ways. Somebody good walking into evil ground, not good there for them either. So sanctified ground. So they go ahead and they, they agree to help if they can. They talk about it, give better all descriptions and such. They agree to come back in a couple of days. So they're like, okay, what's our next move? Well, that was the big one. And we know we've got some help there. See if we can get some help a little bit lower. Let's go ahead and, and talk with this uh, gentleman, Lazel, Lazel, sorry, Lazel, that uh, Amos recommended. And they, you know, they take a little time. They take the windy road around. They're not in a straight line, and they're looking. They're looking for any signs of Ormon, looking for any signs of Dina. It's hard to do it when you're surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and you can't specifically say, hey, have you seen this woman? Like, doesn't have a picture. There is no picture. Man wouldn't like be easier with pictures in these kind of situations. Take advantage of that. Here in our world, I can show you a picture. They didn't have that. So I'm going to whip out a portrait real quick. So they make their way to the Blades Edge Knives and Cutlery in the Green District. Or Borough. Um, now, they were told by Amos that the building was owned by Drogal, the half-orc. Again, a problem. Just a half-orc. It's his place. Uh, and they sell blades. Not swords and axes and things like that. But more like knives, pocket knives. They'll probably have daggers would be the closest weapon that they have. But it's more knives and things used for trades. Leather knives. They also do sharpening and such. That's a probably a big part of his business is the other craftsmen coming in there to get their blades sharpened. Those that don't do it themselves. Butcher needs his blade sharpened, right? All that kind of stuff. You need a new blade. He's who you go through in that area to get those type of blades, but not weapons. There are weaponsmiths and armorsmiths and all that still in the city. They make their way there and they kind of just hang out up front a little bit watching the place, you know, casually. Luckily, it's, it, they're not out of, out of usual that way. There's lots of people just stopped on the street, people moving around. And they notice that definitely where they are right now, 90% of the people are walking around with a green sash on. Now, as they get deeper into the boroughs away from the main streets, people are all wearing their green. And while no one's mentioned it, you can assume getting caught wearing a sash that is not your color probably be bad for you. So... They're, they're quite open about the fact that they've got nothing on them that looks like a sash. They're not trying to look like they belong in a certain group or not. Again, you're not going to be truthful as much as possible. You'll win people over. It's easier that way. So they make their way to the blade heads and they go inside. And sure enough, he's the guy working there. And there's a the young uh, human early teenager is probably working under him like an apprentice or something. Sharpening some knives and they're talking. And there's another person in there buying some knives. And when he's done, he leaves. Walk up and then he's like, he's like, ah, what can I get you, gentlemen? In, in, in a very pleasant, you know, he's half orc, so he's got that half orc snouty nose look, and you know, he definitely is a half orc, but he, 
he's very friendly. He's like, hey, what can I get you guys? And he's a pretty big guy. Like, he's a little bigger, more muscular than any of them. But not like a, a monster or anything like that. But he's like, he's like, hey, what can I get you guys? You looking for some knives? I got some great knives. And he sees, and, you know, he looks, he's like, okay, I can see you both have swords. Little dude's got a big-ass hammer. You guys need a dagger? Craftsman, you need some. You know, obviously, you can know you know how to use weapons, but you need something like this. And they look a little bit, and they chant. Actually, we're we're kind of here to speak to someone. Okay, he's like, and who would that be? Well, we are staying at the name the name of the inn, and uh, there's a gentleman there named Amos who said that we should come here and, and speak with someone named Lazel. We're looking, trying to find some people. He was a very nice guy. Recommended that we come here. That uh, the lazel gentleman, whoever he is, might uh, might have a little more information on the people we're looking for. Well, he gets a little more serious at this point. Somebody else comes in and he turns and kind of smacks the kid. Go deal with that. And the kid goes over there and kind of takes him aside and they're doing some business stuff. He asks him a couple questions. Okay, so Amos sent you. What was the name of the bargain? He gives basic questions to find out stuff. Okay, where are you from? And they go, we're from. Way, way to the East Serenity. We're traveling through here, trying to find somebody, so on and so forth. Ask some questions, and he says, stay here a minute. He goes through a door in the back. And they're just hanging out in the store, looking around for probably 10 minutes. And while they're doing that, they're looking at the goods. The wet blades and such in here appear to be of very good quality. <clears throat> and there are many different designs and styles, <clears throat> more so than it looks like it's made by one person. So very likely he gets the blades from someone else and sells them. He probably doesn't. He probably makes some of them, you know, but he probably doesn't make all these himself. So he's a, a blade dealer as well. And we're like, okay, that makes sense. Maybe that's uh, maybe try and use that some way if we need to. Bribe or, hey, I'm get you some blades. You mean get, get shipment needs protected? You know, that kind of stuff. Blue people attacking your shipments? Trying to think of any angle they can use to get some help here. He comes back out and motions for them to follow him back through the door. And like, okay, so they... Follow them. They go out the back door. And the door doesn't lead into another room like they first would have thought. It actually leads into a bit of a courtyard. Um, if you would, very much like a backyard in a big city's inner city, right? You know, where the houses are right next to each other. Probably a house behind you. So you've got this little square of yard, but there's a wall on every side. You may have a little grass, maybe only grass in the block, you know? But you have this little yard, you hang out your laundry, that kind of thing. That's a lot what this looks like, except there's no grass, it's more dirt. And they can see there's like things on the wall, people with knife throwing, and there's stuff where people, there's knife sharpening stuff. And there's a couple uh, unsavory looking young gentlemen just kind of hanging around here. They walk through the guys, elbows to the guys, they look at him kind of thing. But they don't make a move to cause any problems. But it's like, okay, definitely people throwing knives there. They're working on knives and such here. That's an old sword over there that looks like it's way too dented to be fixed. Sword here, though. That matters. They're watching for anything they might need to do. They make their way, in, they make their way across this uh, small area to a door, which is actually to the building on the other side. And as they're looking around, taking just a glance at their surroundings, Geographically, they're like, okay, there's a building, there's a building, there's a building. This building we're walking to has no access to the street. It's a building surrounded by buildings. It means you can only get into it from another building. So this is a very well-hidden building, if you will. 
Not like super hidden, but there's probably others like it in the city. As more buildings pop up, they expand, whatever, building gets blocked in. So they're led across the way and open another door into a, a rather good-sized room. You know, plenty of room. We'll say 30 feet by 30 feet. Is the, the, the building itself looks like there's stairs on the other side that go upstairs. Uh, there's some chairs and such in here, people lounging, see bottles where people have been drinking and things. And there's a man sitting behind a desk. All right? So when they go inside, they see the, they see that behind the desk is a small, wiry-looking guy. So he looks actually kind of thin. He's not a big, bulky guy. He's human, definitely. He looks probably like he's in his, his mid-40s. And he's just kind of sitting back in the chair. He's got probably a drink up. And he's watching these people walk in to talk to him. It's clearly... He's the one in charge here. They also see that around the room, there are also three really, really big guys. Guys are obviously muscle. Probably they're his bodyguards or protection. He is important in this group, like they say. Oh, hi, Bionic. I'm sorry I missed you earlier. Oh, I missed you. Sorry about that. <laughs> if, but, you know, it's like, hey, these are big guys that are in there. And they come on in. And uh, I forgot the half-orc's name. I just forgot it. Uh, Drogel. <laughs> Drogel introduces him. Just this is Seraph Deacon and Mugen. You can imagine that like Lizzo's sitting there and he's he's eyeing them up. Seraph looks odd. It looks pretty normal. Look, you know, this happens a lot. It looks at me like, what the hell are you? A gnome? A are you skinny gully dwarf? Like it's hard to he doesn't ask. But it's at the same time a look that Mugen's getting used to. Mugen's like Hi, like he just gives that smile, like, yeah, it's me, Mugen. You know, these all things are just through eyes. No one's actually saying it, but that's the type of conversation that's going on through their looks, which is normal. Um, the three large guys are around the room, sitting or leaning in a way that doesn't seem overly threatening, but our heroes here are, are Mugen, maybe not, but Seraph and Deacon are well trained. They're like, they're spaced around so they can very easily get to us before we could get to him, kind of thing. They recognized it from a strategic standpoint. Now, Liesl's relatively friendly. He's kind of to the point. He's like, I was told you wanted to talk to me. Amos sent you. What do you want? What can I do for you? And uh, they say, hey, we're from long, long, long distance to the east. We're traveling this way. West. Traveling this way, looking for some. And they just, he lightly covers Ormon approximately what they look like. And then he says, we're also looking for uh, a young lady that traveled through here with her family and maybe some other folks. She looks like this. Her grandpa and uncle look like this. Her grandma looks like this. Uh, and, and we're just trying to find, we just arrived here yesterday. We're told you might be able to help us find you. Knows a lot of people that might be able to help us out. Trying to imply that, hey, we hear you're very well connected with us saying, hmm, you're a criminal. And Lazel like sits there and he thinks like, I'll be honest, I've heard nothing about anything like that. Group you mentioned of 20 to 25 guys. He's like, I'll be honest, if they'd stepped foot in this borough, I'd have known about it. In fact, they stepped foot in any of the boroughs. I would probably have heard about it by now. You said they've been here several days ago. Group that big, all dressed relatively the same. All on horses come charging into town. I'd have heard about that. Either they're not here. Group did not come in together. And Seraph's like, yeah, we had that concern. Now, most of the talking is being done by Deacon. 
They've now learned this, and then Seraph will interject, and Mugen just sits there and smiles most of the time. Oh, I've heard this story. And uh, Deacon's like, yes, we were also concerned that that could be a problem, um, that they may have come in group, but it's important that we find this young lady before they've determined at this point it's it's good to stress that they need to find Gina before this group. And he says they may come in, even disguised in smaller groups. That's something we've been concerned with as well. Class is like, hey, why would they be disguised? Saying they might have come in hidden or disguised. Why would a person do that coming into the city? Because you can imagine all these people are going to call it theirs. Anybody who thinks they're in charge of a group call. And this is when Deacon begins to tell the story that they've decided to use. That they're trying to find his sister, Dina. He's a human. He's the only human in the group. Dina has brown hair. He has brownish black hair. You know, they're not too far off in age. She's a couple years older than he is. She's my sister. And back in Oramon, there is a very rich lord that's trying to force her to marry him. She ran away. Unfortunately, I'm trying to find her and get get her to safety before they find her. He's very well connected. And uh, he's I know he's sent men out to try to get her. They, they practiced this and made it quite clear to Mugen that this was not the case. And Mugen understood the ruse. And he knew that when that happened, he was just supposed to nod approvingly. Not approvingly. So as soon as Deacon starts talking, Mugen's like this. Which, of course, is drawing attention for the other people. Like, why is that man's head broken? Hmm? Because hmm? he's trying to play the part, but he's never had to play a part before. But it doesn't, it just looks weird when he's doing it. And Deacon's like, trying to talk like he's not noticing it and trying not to draw attention to Mugen's head just bobbing like one of those birds that dip into water. The plastic ones, not a real bird. So, Lacel says, well, he says, uh, no, that's fine. If you want to look for her, you're looking for your sister, that's fine. I'm not going to stop you for that. Of course you want to find your sister. I don't have anything that can help you. And to be honest, if you and some rich lord are having problems, I'd rather not get into the middle of this. I've not heard anything, seen anything about this. Uh, and to be honest, I'd rather you keep it out of my borough. And uh, they're like, okay, fine. Appreciate that. Respect it. Thanks for talking to us. And they get turned and they're about to walk out and they hear one of the big guys say to the other guy, and he says, besides, that the rich lord would pay more. And you know that's not going to set well. And Sarah stops and turns and looks at them. Says, choosing them over me in this situation not being you. Not what you want to happen. Lasso gets mad at that. He's like, uh, like, I'll tell you, we don't take kindly to be threatened in our own home. What we decide to do is none of your business. Seraph goes, Seraph turns and goes, and don't make it my business. Lasso gives like a, like an, ha, get them the hell out of here. Get them out of here. Seraph feels Drogal, the half-orc, his hand slap on his shoulder and start to pull him back. Seraph just reaches up, takes his hand, and squeezes him. Drogal just screams out in pain and hits, falls down on the side. He's just sitting there holding it like this. He's just sitting there, hits the ground. Because you understand, Seraph could just crush his hand to pieces if he wanted to. 
halfway there, just squeezing that hand. Now, of course, when that happens, hits the ground, the other three men jump into the situation, not, not lazily, still be on the desk, but the three big guys pull out, one pulls out a knife, guy grabs a club, starts coming forward. One who's closest to a seraph, the one that made the snide remark about uh, maybe the rich lord would pay more. They didn't offer to pay Seraph. Seraph wasn't asking to pay either. Seraph lets go of the half-orc's hand, and as the guy comes over with his club, he swings it, and like it's nothing, Seraph just bats the man's hand away. Like this guy, big guy's an in-swing. Seraph's like, bat, and then backhands the guy, which, you know, that's a lot for Seraph. He, he, he reels back, and then he basically reaches in, grabs him by the belt, and just lifts him up with one hand over his head. The second guy's running, and Seraph just tosses one guy into the other guy. With one hand. His offhand, if you will. Just picks this big guy up and throws him at another big guy. And they hit each other and hit the floor. The third guy rushes in on Deacon, who pulls his sword and he puts his hand, and his hand starts to glow, and his mouth starts moving. He's clearly casting a spell. And then with Mugen, his hammer's in his hand. Like, no one saw his hammer get into his hand. No one saw him pull it out. His hammer is in his hand. It's not a hammer that appears in his hand. But it was basically pulled out so fast, he had it in his hand. His head is not nodding. And he steps in front of Deacon. The three of them have this. They know this now. They've been around each other enough. He knows Deacon has to use his magic stuff. He can't be interrupted. So my job is to stand in front of him and make sure nobody gets to Deacon. Deacon, probably a better melee fighter than Mugen is. But a quick spell at the beginning of a fight can really help you, especially if you're outnumbered. Getting that one spell off before he steps into melee as well could make all the difference in a fight. So Mugen, its job is to buy him that round. And they're not, he's not a meat shield. They're putting him there because they have every confidence Mugen can do this. They've seen Mugen. Mugen can thump a skull if he needs to. Not only that, Mugen has magic immunity. At least to a pretty high degree. If there's an opposing major cleric and they're casting a spell at Mugen, he's also going to be help protecting Deacon from the brunt of what could be a magic spell. And it may not even bother him in the least. So he is literally going to tank. You're using video game terms. He's going to tank for Deacon in the first one or two rounds while Deacon does the spell he needs. Then they can fight side by side, just trying to stay out of Seraph's way. Because Seraph is going to be moving very quickly, taking out anything he considers to be a threat. Well, they're the same kind of thing. So they have this kind of worked out. They've been side by side. They've been traveling for months together at this point. They've, they've learned how to trust each other. Even though they've only had to fight a couple of times. His hand starts glowing. Mugen's in front. Guys running in. Two guys hit the floor rolling and they're trying to climb back up again. Half-Orc's nursing his hand, crying on the floor. Lazel gets, whoa, whoa, stop. Every, whoa, whoa, everybody. Everybody stop. He's a little louder. I'm not one to yell because I got people sleeping. I'm like, everybody stop. Whoa, that's enough. Talking to his people. He's like, that's enough. Stop. Whoa. Deacon stops talking and his hand still glows a little. And he's holding his position. No longer casting. At least doesn't look like he's casting the spell continuously. Mugen's just like watching for anyone to come that direction. Seraph steps over next to them. And he's like, whoa, well now, well now. Hmm. And he's got a bit of a beard. Like, like well now. 
I have to be honest, boys. I wasn't expecting that. Expecting that at all. You know what? Maybe, maybe I can help you. Maybe we can help each other. He yells one of these, bring in some chairs. But bring in some chairs. Big guy. Guy's face is already blackened out where he got slapped across the face. They bring in some chairs and he's like, please, have a seat. Have a talk. They take a minute and they look and they're like, okay. And Boogan and Deacon sits down. Seraph chooses to stand. Making it clear, Seraph will kill anybody who has a problem. Seraph has that look about him when he gets angry. He has that angry look. He's not super angry. His eyes have not gone red yet. His fangs aren't sticking out. That happens when he gets really angry. Control that in most situations. So he says, I think we can help each other. If you're willing to give me a moment, listen. I know that did not go well. Apologize for that. Hear me out. Carmen, but maybe we can help each other. All right, we're open to hearing it. He says, all right. Explain something to you. You know about the burrows. You've been here a little while now. You've heard about how the burrows work. Like, yeah, we have a rough understanding. Good, good. There's a particular burrow that we have problems with. Fire tongue burrow, or the ones wearing the red sash, are the biggest and strongest burrow in the city and have been for a few years now. It's not something any of the other burrows are really happy about. Uh, but, you know, there's not really a position or situation where anybody would really group up against them. Don't, we're not, no, one, no one wants to make that first move. But uh, their strongest warrior is just this mountain of a man. Huge day, or huge dude, named Girok. Girok, sorry. Girok, I said it wrong. Girok. Girok is a huge man. Hell of a fighter. And well-known. Just a cruel, cruel man. And every week, Bartung Borough, they host fights. Go in and gamble. Anyone's welcome from anywhere to come in and challenge. Fat purses to be made, plus gambling on the side, prizes. Many people go in there. People come from out of town. Some of the farmers, maybe somebody down on their luck, try to win a few coins. Maybe they can win a couple matches. Work their way up to the big one. They get to fight him. Now, I'm going to tell you, he's been a champion for several years now for a reason. Man is a good fighter. Strong. Looks at Seraph, he goes, not you strong. Strong. And he's back, and they can kind of see where this is going, and he's back, and he's like, many of my fellow, and for, I forgot to say his name, really, Asps, that's the name of them, the Asps, A-S-P, apostrophe S. It's a snake, in case you're wondering. They're green, they're the snakes, but they're called the Asps. Not ass. P in there, I promise. A P in the ass. Wow. Make that joke later. Okay, so they're asps. They're snakes. He goes, uh, there's been a lot of asps over the years that have uh, been uh, seriously hurt, maimed, or even killed by this man. Different types of rumbles, situations, or even in the ring like that. But I'll tell you what, if uh, if someone was to Say, enter the fights. 
neutral party, if you will, someone from outside the city, someone with no tie to any of the other uh, boroughs, were to go in there and uh, defeat this man. That would be a huge hit. Firetongue's uh, ego there. That would be a big hit against him, especially if, uh, you know, he took some serious damage. Not saying kill him, but, you know, he ended up a little broken for a little while. Uh, you know, show the man has you know, some weakness. I think that would go a long way to maybe uh, sucking a little wind out of the sails out of this certain borough that uh, is getting a little bit too cocky for everyone else's liking. But again, not too cocky that anybody else would team up against them. There may be some kind of tentative alliances where they won't mess with each other, but no two boroughs are openly friends because then the other boroughs like, oh, nobody wants to start everybody teaming up and getting to two sides and it become a war. Nobody wants that. He says, if you go in, three of you are clearly capable. You go in, enter the fights, say you're here to make some coin, work your way up, take him out. That would be a, you know, you defeat him in battle, huge blow. You do that. And I will use all my contacts and resources to help you find your sister. Do everything we can to help you find your sister first. I have contacts. And it's true, I've not heard of anything about them yet, but let's be honest, I haven't had a reason to look now. You could very well give me that reason. The guys sit there in silence, look at each other, and Dean goes, Deacon says, We didn't come here to hurt strangers or make enemies. Laser laughs. He goes, ha, ha, no, understandable, understandable. You don't know anybody. You don't have any any, any name in this fight here. You, you don't need to be involved. I understand that. But I'll tell you what. I was being kind when I said that he's a, known to be a, a violent person, a, a horrible person. That's a nice way of addressing this. Go down there and watch the fights tomorrow. Go down and watch because I have a, a strong feeling that your uh, high and mighty ordeals uh, might motivate you to get involved all on their own. Go in and watch. Decide to get involved. My help is there if you win. Don't get involved. You don't win. We let bygones be bygones. You go and do your job all by yourself. Don't bother me anymore. Either way, it does this have to be a problem. They kind of look at each other, and Deacon's like, watch. Nods, and he's like, okay. Like, okay. We'll go and we'll watch. I don't know how, how that's specifically supposed to inspire us. Yeah, we'll go watch. See what comes of it. So, uh, goes, okay, go and check. He goes, oh, I have a feeling. He looks at Seraph. Looks at Deacon. Looks at Mugen. Back to kind of the whole group as a whole. He goes, I have a feeling you'll be. Gives him some instructions on where to go. He pulls out a piece of paper, draws out like a little basic map. Here's how you, and says, Here's how you get to the uh, fire tongue. Trust me, if you win, I'll know. <laughs> I'll know really fast. They're like, okay. They turn and they go to leave, and the half-orc still got tears in his face, nursing his hand. Like, 
and just kind of walk by him and make their way out. He follows them out. Out okay. So <clears throat> they end up going outside. They they, get, they make their way outside the shop. Now they're back out on the street again. Take a few steps away where they can speak without anybody inside hearing them and chance to talk about it. They're like, well, I mean, might as well go look. I don't like the guy, but he clearly has connections. And if we can legitimately convince him to help us, that, that could really make a big difference. We can, and he goes, if we can also make it clear, we're not to be messed with. He may just want to get rid of us. Kind of like the cleric said, if we, if we bring in more problems and, and it's better for us to just leave the city, he might be inspired to help us get out of here as well. Say we go watch, we see what happens. I don't know what an inspiring thing, what he was talking about there, but we'll, I guess we'll figure it out. They agree, and they're like, okay, cool. Plus, Mugen mentions, goes, plus, we will see Dina there. Seraph looks at him like, what would Dina be doing? And he goes, wait a minute. Just say a lot of people are there. You may not see Dina. You might see some of the Ormanians. They might have come through. Open fights. They're violent people. They may be checking things out. We might be able to find something there. Now, with this, they're like, okay, now that makes sense. All right, we may, who knows? Maybe we'll see Sign of Dina. A whole other borough we've not been in yet. We'll take the rest of today, keep searching, looking around, hit some of the common areas, like the marketplaces, maybe walk around the, the fancy city and such a little bit. You know, the middle part where the fancy folks live, the, rich, the nobles, if you will. We'll go do that today, where we're not really messing with the borough. And then, uh, we will. Tomorrow, we'll go check out these fights. So they've kind of got their plan now. They're like, okay, we haven't said we'd do anything. We've got time. Excellent. So they go ahead and they're like, all right, let's go keep looking. And they agree to take this. They go to walk. From a short distance away, hidden well in the shadows of an alley, a dark figure watched the three young men go. Good, said the dark man. We can finally begin. He pulled his hood lower to help hide his long white hair and sank deeper into the alley. There were preparations to be. <clears throat> so, we're not done yet. I've got another thing to read you. <clears throat> While this is going on, there's also things going on elsewhere. The city of Serenity is in mourning. With the passing of one of its first sons, the death of Sir Lucas Bingham was felt by all. No greater was that loss felt than in Serenity's temple. Lucas had been the head Templar there for many, many years, and still, in his older age, was a visitor on a regular basis. Lucas had passed peacefully in his sleep several nights earlier. A quick but thorough investigation verified that there was no foul play involved. Just been his time. Lucas's deeds helped to settle the lands of Serenity and was beloved by all. Even though he'd put down his sword many years before, his knowledge and teachings were still commonly used at both the temple and the castle. He was to be given a hero's funeral by order of the queen herself. 
the event brought in people far and wide to pay their respects. The temple had commissioned a statue of the man that would be placed in the temple gardens, a place he loved to sit, even though the thought of such a thing would have appalled him while he was alive. The king and queen both spoke at his burial, praising his deeds and his love for the people of Serenity. Others spoke as well, and many messages were read and received from the other kingdoms and allies of Serenity. When it had finally had been Artemis's turn to speak, she made no attempt to fight back her tears. She spoke long of how much Lucas had meant to her, becoming the father she never had. She told of his sacrifices and all of the time he'd put his life on the line to protect hers. She choked up for a moment and had to gather herself while speaking of how much Lucas had done to help raise her son Seraph. And Seraph would have never grown to be the good-hearted man he was had it not been for Lucas. And then finally she spoke of Serenity, first place he had ever called home. She spoke of the responsibility they all had to protect and keep the land in that image and in the ideals Lucas had spent most of his later years helping to build and defend, that they must all do their part to keep Serenity a place of peace and love and welcoming. By the time Artemis finished speaking, there wasn't a dry eye in the crowd. Everyone took their time to say goodbye before Lucas was laid to rest in the tomb that had been made for him. That had been three days ago. The feeling of sadness and loss still permeated throughout the temple. As expected, Lucas's wife Molly was beside herself with grief. He had been temporarily moved back into the temple while she dealt with his loss before they determined what would be the best place for her to be after. It was from visiting Molly that Artemis and Draven were returning from this night. Artemis still couldn't believe Lucas was gone. She felt more tears as they climbed the stairs to their personal quarters. Seeing the door to Seraph's room only made her feel worse. It would break Seraph's heart when he learned of Lucas's passing. Not been here to say goodbye. The man had been a grandfather to Sarah. No one else had. Her thoughts were heavy, so she almost didn't notice it when Draven said, Hold. But years at fighting at his side kicked in, recognized the tone of his voice. She froze immediately. Is wrong, Artemis whispered. Two Templars guarding the hall also snapped to attention, their hands slowly moving towards their swords. Someone sighed, Raven replied. It was easy to see the concern on his face. The guard begins to draw their swords, but Draven quickly stopped them. Who is it? Artemis asked, both worried and confused. Raven looked her in the eyes. Someone shouldn't be here, he said gravely. Raven told the Templars to stay at their post. Took Artemis's hands, he quietly opened the door. Stepping into the common room, Artemis immediately saw the young woman sitting on the couch. Artemis had absolutely no idea who she was. The young woman's brown hair was tied back, and it was easy to see she was a human. Her skin was slightly tanned, like their friend Tanner. 
her tevins. And she was dressed in fine leathers. Artemis could see she had several daggers on her belt, strapped to her legs. The young woman smiled at the sight of them. It looked sincere, though for reasons couldn't, Artemis couldn't explain, it only served to make her look more dangerous. What are you doing here, Cat? asked Draven. The woman's smile grew, and then she said, Now, Draven, is that any way to greet an old friend? It's been so long. Not nearly long enough, replied Draven sternly. So I'll ask you again, what are you doing here? This is against our deal. The woman's smile faded a little. And she rose to her feet. Situations have changed, she said, so the deal needs to be altered. Again, the woman's smile returned, and she turned to address Artemis. My manners, she said. We've not been properly introduced. Pat stepped forward, offering her hand in greeting. Raven made no move to stop her. Artemis accepted it. My name is Cat, obviously, the young woman said. And I must say, it's quite an honor to meet you, my Artemis. Truth be told, I'm quite a fan. Artemis politely accepted your greeting. Thank you. You'll understand I'm concerned to find someone standing in my chambers. Forgive me, replied Cat. It was important we meet privately. Get to it then, Draven said. Irritation was obvious in his voice. Kat's smile faded completely as she stared back at him. Artemis noticed Kat's demeanor and stance had not changed. She gave no indication she was afraid of Draven in the slightest. This made Artemis uneasy. Draven and Kat stood there for a moment in silence. And when Kat finally spoke, she said, She wants a meeting. Draven quickly became angrier. There are better ways to reach me than here, and you know it. Not with you, Pat said quietly, turning to look at Artemis. You would have thought she'd struck Draven across the face with how shocked he was hearing her words. So much so, he involuntarily took a step back. It's not possible. Raven stuttered. This must be some kind of a mistake. Meet who? Artemis asked. She knew she already knew the answer. The Black Rose. Draven stood there speechless, while Artemis walked to a nearby chair and sat down. Once settled, she asked, That is not you? You honor me, my lady, Cat said, bowing low. But no, the thorn of the road, one she has chosen to speak for her. See. Why does she wish to see me? Sick. That is not for me to know, said Cat. But I do know it is a very time-sensitive matter. She wishes to meet you tonight. Raven began to speak, but Artemis quickly cut him off. Where does she want to meet? Raven knows where to take you. She would like you to come alone, in no danger. 
Draven stepped forward. His demeanor had now changed to one of concern. Positive, Cat, Draven said. There's no other way. There is not, Cat replied flatly. These are her wishes as she spoke them to me personally. The three were all silent for several moments. I will go, said Artemis, quickly cutting off Draven's immediate objection. You've always told me. Your arrangement with the Rose has always been honored. Offered safe package, then I will trust you, trust her as you have. It was clear Draven was still very worried, but he nodded in understanding. Cat once again regained her smile. Excellent, said Cat. I shall advise her of your decision. Draven, please have her there at midnight. Waiting. Cat turned and began to walk towards the door, but stopped quickly when she heard Draven say her name quietly. I know I don't have to explain the ramifications should slightest way, so I will not waste my time with threats. I would, though, like to ask of you a favor. Bring another man. Cat's smile faded, but she nodded, indicating he should continue. Don't hurt him. That's all Draven said. Cat stood there a moment, expression unchanged. She turned, walked straight out of the room. For a couple of moments, Draven stepped over to, sure she was gone, steps over to Artemis and says, I do not like this at all. Neither do I, replied Artemis. Feel I must go. The Rose has been active in Serenity for over 20 years, and she's never reached out to anyone but you. Not know what's changed. It's an opportunity that I can't pass up. <clears throat> Draven nodded in acceptance, then sent for Percy to make plans for <clears throat> Several hours later, as Artemis climbed out of the chest of holding, she was immediately struck by the smell. Draven had told her they'd be going into Serenity's sewers, but nothing could have prepared her for the odor. She took a moment to allow her eyes to adjust to the darkness, and then looked around. They were standing at an intersection. The awful fluid came in three ways and exited out the last. Luckily, there was a raised walkway along the sides, so they did not have to stand in the muck. Draven led her along the corridor for several minutes until they entered a large chamber. In the center, there appeared a huge drain going down into the darkness. Artemis could only imagine the fate of any poor soul who should fall in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Cat was already there, waiting for them on the other side of the room, near another exit. They made their way around to her very carefully, to not fall in. Cat motioned that Artemis should follow her. I will be waiting here when you are done, Draven said over the sound of the water. Artemis smiled and squeezed his hand, and then began to follow the waiting rogue. They traveled in silence through the winding maze of tunnels below the city. Artemis had known it was all there, but had never seen any of it. It didn't take long before she was completely lost. Finally, they entered a small side tunnel. There were some old broken crates to the side that looked like they'd washed in long ago, but fortunately the smell here was not quite as bad. 
Pat came to a stop next to the wall halfway down the corridor. The wall here looked no different than any other wall that she'd seen, yet Kat pressed her hands against several spots in what appeared to be a very deliberate order. A section of the wall silently swung open, revealing a secret doorway. Kat motioned for Artemis to enter, or enter first, and once she was inside, Kat stepped in and closed the door behind them. The small room on the other side had a door on the opposite wall. The smell here, almost completely gone, locked by the closed door. Torch sat on the wall, giving off a small amount of light. You may go inside. He's waiting for you, Pat said. I will escort you back when you are done. Artemis reached for the door, but then stopped. Turning back, she looked at Cat and asked, May I ask, why do you serve her? Seem like a very capable young woman, smart, able to take care of herself. Why this? I owe her more than you could ever imagine, replied Cat. And are you afraid of her? Artemis asked. The rumor of the rose's viciousness legendary. The color drained from Cat's face. For the very first time, the woman's mask of confidence cracked. Anything in the world, the young woman whispered. Stunned by the young woman's honesty, Artemis hesitated. Reaching again for the door, she opened it easily and stepped inside. This new room was much larger, to tell from the echoes, though she could see very little of it. A table with two chairs sat in the center of the room. A candle sat lit at its center, next to a silver jug and two cups. Other candles sat around the room, lighting only small areas and filling the room with shadows, yet providing just enough light to keep her from being able to use her infravision. She had no doubt that this was on purpose. Hidden in those shadows could be multiple people. It was hard to know. The room was completely silent. Artemis confidently walked to the center of the room, next to the table. Looking into the darkness around her, she said, You have summoned me, and I have come. What is it you wish of me? It was answered by only silence. Dripping of water. After a few moments, she felt her anger growing. Finally, she said, I have not come to play games, so do not waste my time. You even there? Yes, came a reply whispered from the shadows. Are correct. There's no more time. The woman stepped out of the shadows and stood before Artemis. Artemis, she fainted. This made no sense. Her mind raced, trying to put the pieces together, trying to connect the lines that should nowhere be near. After it all, the only thing she could say, two simple words. Dandy. Why? Hello, Artemis, Dandy said. It's a pleasure to finally meet you in person. Please, call me Rose. That's where I'm going to stop for today.
Now, I've often wondered if I gave that away early. So I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. Um, this has been there building for a very, very long time. And I'm excited to finally step into it. Hit your cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Um, uh, I can tell you this. This has always been planned. She has always been the Rose. And no, the young woman who played the character did not know that either. Always assumed the rose was cat. I worked really hard, really, really hard to make it look like it was cat without directly saying it was cat. But hopefully people would think they were figuring it out. Started to get a tiny feeling at the end of the episode. Yep. Once cat once cat once I knew I revealed that cat wasn't her, wasn't the rose, I knew I had to identify the rose immediately. Because I've introduced nobody else. People are going to say, who do we know who is the Rose then? I knew that had to be a one-two punch back-to-back -back in order for it to have the weight that I wanted it to have in the story. But yes, the young woman who played the role had no idea, which made it much easier to play, not knowing, right? Because she's... I can tell you that we'll be addressing this next episode. I'm going to make you wait multiple episodes for any... We will be continuing next episode right here. I'm excited. Hello, Ancient One. I'm excited to finally get to tell... Oh. <laughs> you know, all the H's and W words. I'm excited to finally show this because uh, I think that many of you, especially those of you who've heard the whole story, have been here and big fans a long time, you're going to look back at different times. Andy wasn't quite herself. There are going to be times when Dandy says, we made this decision. Really sounds like she's talking about her and the party. Talking about her. So, I'm uh, sorry about it. You first thought that? Definitely possible. I knew that was possible. I get it. It was one of those things where uh, I knew that, you know, I had to keep building up the rose without giving away the connection, and it's not easy. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> hopefully, that's a good twist, and if you did figure it out, hopefully it was still worth the time hearing that part. Um, I'm excited to dive more into that, and we can look at some of the history and origins of the Rose next time. Um, and then, very soon... We'll also get you you'll probably figure out why this is happening now. 
I've been, I've been chatting some in the Discord with people, and I've been talking to people in my other streams where this has come up. Um, you know, I, I've I've mentioned that uh, I've been building this for a while, and that it was important to me that people remember that while the kids are out doing stuff, parents are still at home. These are people who've had bad stuff happen all the time their whole lives. It's not just going to stop cold turkey. They're still going to be dealing with adventures and problems of their own. It's not always just going to be artists and serif. So, artist groups and serif groups. I say that very much. I also feel that artists and serif are getting a lot of the limelight. Uh, you are going to see a lot more uh, development and interaction of some of the other characters starting here very soon. I've been really setting the stage to this point, and now I'm in a spot where I can really let some of the people's personalities shine um, and let them step up and take some more of the forefront of the actual uh, uh, decisions and efforts themselves. So uh, I'm sure that, again, a bunch of that was a bunch of the past. is like, wow, artist, really her story, and it's really Sarah's story. Uh, it seemed that way because I needed to set this stage. I'm at a point now where I can promise you that they're all important. Everybody's there for finally in a spot now with them going to Paradon and with Art, uh, Seraph in the city they're in. I've got the spot to really get into a story and bring everybody. So I'm very excited doing with two very different stories uh, with two very different groups. But at the same time, now entering in with this third wedge that is the Rose storyline. So um, I have a I have a lot. If you have any questions, of course, about this episode or any of my other episodes, you can put them down in the comments. That would be great. Uh, or you can join our Discord channel. Links down uh, in the bottom. Uh, all my links for all my socials are down in the description of all of these streams. If you're on the video uh, or if you're audio only or you'd like, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. Um, You'll find links to all my socials, my streaming schedule, uh, all the pictures of the characters of these, uh, which now I'm going to get to show you a picture of the Rose, who I've had for a very long time. <laughs> I've got a lot of minis I've painted you've never seen, and I'm excited when I get to pull one out. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of those type of characters popping in there. A lot of uh, really cool Merge World stuff you'll find on my website, including Merge World shirts, like I'm wearing now. Uh, but you can go there and check that out if you'd like. Again, if you are listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, bless you very much. I really appreciate you listening to this, uh, especially if you don't know any of my other content and you just discovered Merge Worlds. That's awesome. I'd love to hear from you too. If you don't mind... It would be awesome if you wouldn't mind rating us. You know, five stars are the best, but I'll take whatever you get. Uh, if you want to leave a review, you can do that on Spotify now. So if you have a Spotify or you have an iTunes and you're not yet following the podcast, it'd be awesome if you'd consider it. Links to that can be found on the homepage of my website. Um, but next week is Behind the Dice, and I'm actually going to have one this time. I don't have to have any reason to cancel it. And then that after that, uh, the week after, we'll be back talking to... Rose, and learning a little bit more about uh story. Okay? I give 10 stars? I would appreciate that. <laughs> just, just tape five more on your screen of your phone or your computer. I'll take that. <laughs> but that said, I am going to call this a day. We're a little over the two-hour mark. We're right about where I wanted to be. Uh, thank you very much uh, for giving me the opportunity to uh, tell this story. Um, as always, I don't get to do this if it wasn't for you all, so I really, really appreciate your support, okay? You all have yourselves a wonderful evening, a great weekend, and I'll see you in two more weeks for a little bit more.